This is John Shannon with Radio Free Galisteo, and today I am speaking with Gail Merrifield Papp, and we're going to talk about her new book, Public Private, My Life with Joe Papp at the Public Theater. Gail was born in San Francisco into a family with deep theater lineage, and after joining Joseph Papp's New York Shakespeare Festival in 1965, she became director of New Works Development for the Public Theater. It was more than just uh, uh, joining the Shakespeare Festival. You two joined together as a couple, and the rest is history. Gail, go ahead and tell us tell us about your relationship with Joe, and also what you two did together. Okay. Well, I came to work for Joe Papp in way back in 1965, and I was hired as a sort of temporary worker at his then already famous Free Shakespeare in Central Park. And I was uh, a note taker for him as a director during one of those Shakespeare plays in the summer. And it was that was the year that, that I met him. I was supposed to be looking for a different job because this, this was just summer employment uh, in August. So before that happened, he offered me a full-time job at his permanent organization, which was still very small. It was simply a summer operation doing Shakespeare, but it had already gotten quite a reputation because he had a big fight with a parks department boss and czar of the day who had demanded that he not let people in free anymore and charge admission. And Joe's passionate idea in founding his Shakespeare Festival was that it should be free to everybody regardless of whether they could pay or not. That, that was a very deeply felt thing for him. So he refused to charge admission. And as a result of that, he was barred from doing Shakespeare in the city's parks. So he, he took it to court and he lost the first round in court, but he appealed to another level of the judicial system, and he was able to get a unified vote from the, all the judges on the state Supreme Court that he had a right to do free Shakespeare in Central Park, and that the, uh, the, the, the czar, who was then famous, named Robert Moses, had been capricious and arbitrary in his judgment in preventing him from doing that. So this hit the newspapers like nobody's business. It was a blockbuster story throughout the entire year that it was happening. And it turned into a David against Goliath kind of story. And in one way, it served Joe quite well because it put him on the map, the cultural map of New York City in a way that's just undying to this very day. Right, right. So, that was sort of the start of his career in the theater. It was his win with free Shakespeare and the idea of free access to culture. First of all, for audiences, because they didn't have to pay for a ticket. You can't pay for a ticket, you can't see a lot of culture. So he didn't think that was right. When I was in grad school, I was in urban planning, and my dissertation supervisor was one of the foremost experts on Robert Moses. 
Oh my, really? <laughs> yeah. So when you started talking about this sort of tyrannical public works guy, I was like, hey, that's Robert Moses, I'll bet. And sure enough. <laughs> sure enough. It was. It's amazing to think how powerful he was at that time. So the next thing Joe wanted was, remember this is in the 60s, it's a different era. He wanted free access for all people who wanted to be in the theater, whether they were artists, workers, whoever they might be that had that aspiration. So he thought, well, you know, he started out with free access for actors, for one thing. This was in the day when people like James Earl Jones, who was then very young, and Morgan Freeman, both of whom became very famous in film, they weren't sure whether they could be cast in Shakespeare because there was a general uh, feeling that actors of color or ethnicity it really shouldn't be cast in certain roles in Shakespeare. Joe made all of those roles across the board available to everybody. Okay. And both Morgan Freeman and James Earl Jones acted in many of Joe's Shakespeare productions in the major roles. So that was around the time that I joined the festival, which was in a small summertime operation. And it was based in a rather shabby hotel uptown. And there were just 12 people. He had an operation that also was on a mobile theater and in the schools. He didn't have a permanent theater, though. Just had the, the summertime amphitheater in the park. So at the time that I came to work, he wanted to push his idea of access even further, primarily for writers as well as actors, which he'd already done. But he felt there was limited access to the stages of New York for writers in the theater. He was absolutely right about that. Composers also, designers also, across the board, backstage people also. So he wanted a permanent year-round theater. Well, you know, that's just great. You can dream all you want about that, but where are you right. going to find it? Who's nobody's yeah. going to give it to you? <laughs> <laughs> nobody's going to give it to you. He had no connections, really. Um, he had really no money to buy anything. He couldn't buy any real estate. But nevertheless, he went around looking at uh, kind of small cinemas and small churches that might be converted into a playing space. I remember he was going out one day to look at these places. And he said, he said to me, you know, I have no money. I just want to do it. <laughs> well, <laughs> all right, good luck, you know. But he found a, a, a wreck of a building in East Greenwich Village. It had been abandoned for years on end. There were cobwebs hanging down from the rafters. It was a three-story former library of the 19th century that had been occupied by the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society for many years after it was a library. And then they had left and it was a derelict building that was about to be bulldozed to make way for a high-rise condo. Fortunately, at that very moment, the New York City's landmarks law had just been passed, which protected certain historic buildings that were declared landmarks and of some value uh, safe from being bulldozed if some other person could come in to buy it that had a repurposed mission for it and had the ability to do that. 
So Waldo had no money to buy the building, but he managed to raise it in time. And he persuaded the buyer who planned to raise the building, I mean, I mean, level it, uh, to accept a reduced payment <laughs> for, the stuff, for the structure. And he got some city funds and some other donations. He also got a bank loan and he managed to pull it off. It was amazingly only $512,000 back in 66. Wow. A beautiful three-story building, gorgeous uh, architecture that was still visible when I first went through it with him. But it was just a, a wreck of a building. It's been left alone for so many years. Anyway, that was the beginning of the public theater. And he managed from year to year to raise enough money to put on a few shows. The first season, he had only one theater in the building there, and there are now six. But in his first theater, he wanted to do new American work. Of course, that was the purpose of the building. And he hadn't found anything they really wanted to do four months before the opening date. And I thought, my God, what's going to happen here? It's a disaster. We announced it all over the world, all over the place. We're going to do this, and we don't have the play. What's going to happen? So um, what happened was that Joe came back from a teaching position he had up at Yale. And he was on the train coming back to New York. And he ran into this shaggy, crazy-looking guy on the train who handed him about four pages of handwritten, scrawled, almost indecipherable, rather illiterate-looking lyrics to a song. And the guy was very enthusiastic about what he was doing. He said, well, thank you very much. I'll, I'll take them. And you know, when you have some more stuff, you know, get in touch with me. So about two weeks later, the guy got in touch. He said, I have some more stuff. And Joe said, great. He said, uh, you want to bring it in? And I said, yeah. He said, I'm, my friends here it would also like to come with me. Joe said, fine, bring your friends. So three people showed up. It was his co-collaborator and a composer. These were the three guys who created this musical based on an inter interesting kind of manuscript that had words like uh, hair, 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 hair. <laughs> <laughs> I see where this is going. You see where that's going? Yeah. So, so we listened to this stuff on Joe's old upright piano and his dusty office. It was still part of the shambles of the building. And Joe decided this was the thing he wanted to open the public theater with. These guys hadn't been able to get in anybody's door up to that point, but he got in the door of the public theater as we were starting to launch it. So that was the beginning of a sort of basic outlook of free access. It started out with the hippies that were in our neighborhood at that time. They were all over the place. They were smoking pot sitting on our steps. A lot of the cast spoke pot throughout the show. But it was that that era. And it was also coincided, as the theme of the musical did, with the Vietnam War. So this was something that Joe understood right away because he didn't see any difference between his artistic life and his artistic responsibility towards artists and his social responsibility. He always said, one and the same thing. He didn't see a difference in kind between them. And so he was very open and responsive to many different kinds of work. 
and that included down the line uh, a huge repertory of works that have become uh, classic by this time, like The Normal Heart in later, much later years about the AIDS crisis and so forth. This is Radio Free Galisteo. Great conversations from the Galisteo Basin. Radio Free Galisteo is listener supported. Go to www.radiofreegalisteo.com and click on the red donate button in the upper right hand corner to become an active, sustaining member of Radio Free Galisteo. So that was the beginning of the public theater. And I thought as I started to write this book that there was something in it that might be useful to uh, people who had never heard of him, for one thing, to know about the history, and also younger people to get some kind of personal story rather than historic or scholarly account of how a theater got started and who the people were that made it and then sustained it over three generations of artists and workers. And I think there's, I'm not gonna say a, a lesson or example in that, but I think there's something we can use from the past that can be helpful, especially in our present times, which are really stressed and complicated. So that was the reason I wrote it, essentially, aside from a personal desire to do it. It yeah. was beyond doubt. Uh, well, I, I think, you know, it's, it, it is an example. And I think it, um, it shows a young, ambitious person that, you know, given uh, enough drive and enough creativity, you can make something happen. Um, I, I have to tell you, you know, Joe's legacy is, uh, you know, it's, it's across the country, all these little Shakespeare theater groups. I, I'm part of one myself. We do uh, sure. <laughs> one of these, a classic theater group and we do Shakespeare in the garden here in the Santa Fe uh, Botanical Garden. Wow, uh, that's perfect. Yeah, so you know, and last year, uh, this well, this 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 past summer, we just did Much Ado About Nothing, and I was fortunate enough to be able to play Leonato in that. Oh my gosh! Uh, so <laughs> you know, and we've got stuff planned for next year as well. And uh, you know, listening to you, it, this is I know where the seeds came from. Well, yes, I I, I think there's. The seeds are the nature of the theater itself. I think personally, it probably goes way back beyond the Greeks. I think it probably extends into prehistory. You see all those pictures of people painting their hands on cave walls and with little stick figures of people that look like they're dancing. That's yeah, we have that. We have that here in New Mexico quite a bit as well. <laughs> yes, yes, I know. I know you do. I've been reading about it and utterly fascinated by it. Anyway, I think that this, this impulse, despite the fact that the, all theaters now are really distressed in the post-pandemic era, and every theater in the country is having dreadful problems of trying to keep their audience or get their audience back and so forth. So they're very difficult times, but I think that the basic impulse of theater is just so powerful from prehistoric times to the present day, that it's going to survive. I can't tell you exactly how or what, by what means or in what perhaps different kinds of presentation. It may be that outdoor theater will have a very vigorous 
rebirth at the present time because people are fearful of being indoors still. Who knows? I really don't know. Yeah, that certainly seemed to have been an advantage to us as well, uh, being that, you know, we were outdoors uh, for our performances. Right. Uh, well, let's let me let me take a, a step to the side. So you two began working together, but you also uh, collaborated in in uh, in private as well. Yes. So <laughs> yes, we did. Uh, how did that How did that happen? Well, it was very complicated. We were both with other people, and uh, Joe had a family, and uh, I had been married, and I was with somebody else, so forth and so on, and. It was very gradual over a period of several years that we not only liked each other, we enjoyed talking to each other, and we worked together, of course, and I worked for him. But uh, when I became director of New Plays Development at the Public Theater after a few years, I was very much involved in uh, his artistic ambitions for the theater, which I have to explain something about Joe. He wasn't in the theater to make money. He needed to raise money, but he wasn't in the theater to make money. What he was in, the, his investment in the theater, I should say, was his investment in the artistic people who worked in it. Because he had a soul of an artist himself, and the way he expressed it really was the, what, through what he produced. So his investment in writers and actors and all the creative people was very, very strong and passionate. So when I became more related to that aspect of what he did to my new job capacity, it, it brought us closer and he started taking me out to lunch. <laughs> and we continued a more personal kind of conversation. He didn't know anything about me. I didn't, there weren't any books written about Joe yet, and I didn't know anything about him. All there, all there was available to me was the who's who listing, which is a very boring listing of columns and small print. You can't tell anything from it. So uh, I said, you know, it's a shame, you know, nothing's been written about your whole history and so forth. And he said, he began to tell me about it. He started telling me about his boyhood in Brooklyn, that he'd grown up in an Orthodox Jewish family. It was very poor immigrants from Eastern Europe, and then how he got into the theater, why he liked parks, because they were the only place he could escape to in the summer when it was hot. That was the basic reason. He said there was no huge philosophy in it at first. It was just that simple fact. He observed a lot of people came out and went to the parks because they were too hot at home. So he understood that. So he was very rooted in the people that he grew up amongst. And he began to explain all of that to me. And then he wanted to know about me, what, what I did and so forth. And so I write in my book, I said, well, I was a very secretive person. I didn't like to talk about my own personal story because I found that I had grown up having to go to many different schools, 15 different public schools from kindergarten through 12th grade constantly changing neighborhoods and schools. So I became very uh, uh, shy. And also I learned to not tell anybody anything about myself. So I didn't want to talk about my own background. I was fascinated in Joe's, but when he asked me about mine, I was evasive. So in the book, I write about one of our first lunches. I said, I started telling him about my one of my hobbies 
which is seashells. I collected seashells. You want to know more, more about them. And it wasn't just beach shells. I went to auctions and I learned about the predatory behavior of univalves on bivalves. And um, so he uh, thought, well, so you, you collect them for their beauty, is that it? I said, well, I guess so. But I like their predatory behavior. It's very interesting. That's lunch. I said, my God, what am I going on about malacology and seashells with Joe? You know, but he was very tolerant of it and probably privately abused. I don't know. But anyway, he kept inviting me out for lunches. And we mostly talked about the theater and related subjects. And in that process, and also in the process of our working together, uh, in the artistic aspect of the theater, drew us closer. It turned out we were also both personally unhappy <laughs> with our lives at that moment. And so those things sort of converged. And I have one chapter in my book. It's called The Ontological Hysteric Theater of Richard Foreman, who was its director and creator. So we went out one time not to you know a restaurant for lunch or for dinner before a show but we went to the ontological hysteric theater to see a show which is this avant-garde amazing kind of thing and so i was there with joe and it wasn't one of our own theaters that i was so familiar with it wasn't the delacorte theater in the park and it wasn't the public theater so we were there on a different basis so i was sitting next to him and i saw these started to hear the rustling of his program you know next to me in a very vivid manner and I noticed his shoes were you know very well polished and so forth and I felt a little weird and I thought well this is my imagination of some kind and then all of a sudden during the show Joe reached over and held my hand and it was just an explosion of the pure joy of being alive <laughs> I couldn't believe it but it told me that whatever I was feeling then was reciprocated. And so our relationship developed from that. It took a few years for us to sort out all our home situations, but we did finally and lived together for a few years. And I got to know his children quite well. We were finally married in 1976 after a long process that uh, I think back on even with all its problems with a great deal of uh, wonder and admiration that it happened i don't know what anyone today in these more hypercritical times would make of this relationship probably an hr department would frown on it and call me up for you know supermans well good luck <laughs> i don't give a damn uh it, it was what it was, and it was very fine. It was very beautiful, and nobody ever objected to it. And I feel very proud of it and very happy to recall it in my book in a certain way. Well, we thank you for doing that. The book is Public, Private, My Life with Joe Papp at the Public Theater by Gail Merrifield Papp. Uh, Gail, thank you so much for uh, letting us learn about the book and a bit about your personal life and your uh, your collaboration with Joe. Where can people find this book? Well, they can go to Barnes & Noble 
uh, and they could order it there. There are several other places you can order it from. Well, we'll put a link up with the podcast so that people can find it easily. And as we wind up, uh, just uh, any final thoughts, Gail? All right, just a final thought about the book itself. It's also available in audible form, beautifully narrated by the actor Catherine Grody. So you can get it in that form, hardcover or Kindle online now. Today's its formal publication date. So it's you don't have to pre-order anymore. You can just get it. <laughs> okay, great. Well, as I said, we'll put links to that out there. Gail, thank you. thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Uh, you've been listening to Gail Merrifield Papp speaking about her book, Public Private, My Life with Joe Papp at the Public Theater. And for Radio Free Galisteo, I'm John Shannon.